My biggest advice when you're starting to resell things though is no, don't sell what you know. Don't go in there thinking, I'm, I'm, I think Apple products are gonna be great. I'm gonna pick up all these iPhones when I know nothing about an iPhone. Um, just sell what you know. And I know that that has been something that my, my oldest son has said when he was selling, reselling and flipping, he said the only time he really got posed in an investment that he made was when he deviated from that advice. And so buy what you know, resell what you know, and you'll be successful. Welcome to the Freedom Chasers podcast, where we bring you interviews and discussions that share the stories, successes, goals, and dreams of real estate agents and real estate investors pursuing a life of purpose and freedom. All right, today I get the opportunity to interview Rachel Teodoro, and we get to talk about one of the OGs in the content space, 13 years in the game. A person that is saying, look, you don't actually have to take off your clothes to make money in content. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. And also someone who through means of being frugal, I know this word might not hit the internet very often, has actually had an ability to not only pay off her home, but to live a life of freedom, which is what we're super passionate about here on the show. So if you are actually inclined to want to learn a little bit more about how can we like lower spending to increase freedom, this might be the show for you. Rachel, thank you so much for coming on. Take us into it. Like, Give us some ideas about how you and your family practice frugality that's that's led to some freedom. Oh, well, I, will, I gotta start out by saying this happened really when I was very young. My mom used to take me to the grocery store and there would be like a limit one on like pop or something like that. And she would give me and my friends because she would take us to the store cash to go stand in separate lines so that we could check out. And so we could all have the limit one of the item and purchase that. And so that frugality aspect happened very, very early on. Um, I also used to shadow her all the time to garage sales and uh, seeing how far your money went at a garage sale was so, I guess it just, it sparked something in me because I am, I guess I have that frugal tendency to begin with, which you're totally right. Frugal is the least sexy word out there when we talk about money. Um, but I think it is so important, which is sometimes why I say living well on less or uh, some a conscious spender, um, something like that. And so I've always started out doing those things really naturally. It's come really naturally because it's been modeled to me. And so it's been a really easy journey for me to go on. I just thought everyone did it. I thought everyone cut coupons. I thought everyone, um, you know, went and to six different grocery stores because of what was on sale that week. I thought that, um, you know, people just saved money to buy what they wanted. And um, it just became really naturally uh, for me as an outlet. And when we had our kids very, very young, um, we had our oldest son when we were still in college, it became a necessity for us to live on a lot less because we just did not have any money right then. And so for us to be able to do that really early on was just kind of training us to then, um, because it was a necessity, it wasn't something that was out of, um, you know, oh, let's just do this. I just, we just didn't have any money. And so it was, it was one of those that we were just doing things, but, but to be able to live well and do it that way was really important to me. I can really relate to your story about the coupons. I remember going, okay, uh, McDonald's had like the 10 hamburgers for like 29 cents each. I remember like being in a group of guys and like we would rotate who was in the driver's seat of hundred percent. So we did that in college. Yeah. My husband used to have study groups and we would get 29 cent hamburgers uh, for all of his friends. They would come over and do study group. <laughs> That's so fun. So let's talk about like, obviously couponing and, and things like that, but what are, what are maybe some of the other things that 
might not be quite as obvious that you guys have done to, you know, to keep spending low? I would say we buy most of our clothing used. Um, we, we buy a lot of, of everything used. Um, it's always my first place to look is either Facebook marketplace or Craigslist or garage sales are huge. I have never stopped doing that. Um, reselling is a big thing too. If I've got something being able to resell it and flip it, knowing that I've used it and, and oftentimes I've purchased something that is very inexpensive and then resold it for a profit. And so I know the going rate for a lot of things. So I know when I get a deal and I'm able to sell those things, um, and, and make a great profit on those things after our family has already, already used them. So I did that a lot when the kids were younger. Um, it would be things like high chairs and strollers and clothes when the kids were really small because, you know, baby clothes, they grow out of them in, in 0.4 seconds. And so you've got this outfit or something like that. I'm picking a baby clothes for a quarter a piece. Well, I continued to do that as the kids got bigger. Thankfully, none of them really complained. There were times where I would set aside extra money in, you know, in the budget to buy new stuff for them because they wanted to fit in with their peers in high school or junior high. Um, but for the most part, they were totally okay with buying used. And I think it was just a culture mentality that had been set up because they went along with me to grad sales and they would see that these items were cheaper. Um, my son Owen and I were just talking about this yesterday. He's almost 18. When he was small, I remember giving him, I would give them all like four quarters when we would go to grad sales. So they would have a, you know, a dollar in their pocket and they thought they were just living, you know, large because A, if you give a child a quarter at a garage sale, the negotiation tactic that they have right there is huge. Everybody wants to say yes to a cute little kid who goes up and says, will you take a quarter for this? They always say yes. So the, their money went really, really far. Um, and so I remember him seeing one of those, do you remember the magic eight balls that you used to have and it would tell your future and you'd shake it? Well, he purchased one for 50 cents. Later on that afternoon, we ended up being at Target for whatever reason, picking up something, and he saw them on the toy shelf for $19.99. And he, it clicked in him, this, this mentality of going, oh my gosh, I got the exact same thing for next to nothing for these two quarters. I still had money left over, but this thing cost $20. And so he realized very quickly, very early on, and, and all three of my kids, the same mentality learned very quickly how far their money would go just by shopping at garage sales. Yeah. And like guys like Gary V obviously are very outspoken about garage sales being an unbelievable strategy to not only just like make things cheaper, like you could make six figures off of garage selling. I mean, there's some real, and it's interesting, like the psychology of it, right? Because like, I mean, like most people don't buy brand new houses. Some do, but like we feel fine using, you know, buying not brand new houses, maybe even feel fine buying not brand new cars, but then some of these other items like toys, it's like, oh, we have to have it new. Um, it's interesting how that works psychologically. Like, but that was something obviously you were exposed to very young, right? I mean, obviously that was a philosophy that was given to you by your parents. Yeah, it was. And I, and I was, I used to go to garage sales all the time with my mom. So I knew the value there. Now my husband was the opposite. So he used to, if his dad stopped at a garage sale, he usually picked up something that looked like it should have gone in the rag bin. And so for him, he thought, well, garage sales, you just get trash at. And so that was something that we needed to work on in our marriage initially, because he was like, no, everything you get at a garage sale is going to be crap. And so for me, it was a, it was a shift in his thinking to show, show him, Hey, look at all the things that we can actually pick up. And it allowed us the opportunity to really live well on less at the time, especially when we really didn't have much money um, to be able to get those name brands for our kids, to get those toys that all of their other friends had, to get the clothes that and, and the high quality things that, that no one else had. And then, like you said, the resale market of the flipping and that kind of thing. 
um, my, my oldest son in high school actually did a resale business and he was, he was making tons of money, um, in high school flipping, um, sailboats was his big thing for a while there. And they were making, he had two friends that went in it with him. And you can imagine three teenage guys who walk up to a garage sale. Again, that negotiation tactic, you're coming up, you're going, oh, I'm a college shooter. I'm a high school student. I just really love this boat kind of thing. This is great. Um, I mean, they, they would buy and flip all the time. And so they were making a ton of money just by doing that. And again, that came from him shadowing me, him seeing what was out there, him seeing me negotiate because there's a lot to be learned from negotiation and asking, because what's the worst thing that somebody says is just no. And, and I think that goes a long way even into adulthood because you continue to stand up for yourself. You're not afraid to talk to adults. You have an option and an ability to be able to, to be outspoken, to say what you want um, and test that out in an environment that's, that's really pretty safe. Um, and then go from there and see what happens. And so I think all of my kids have then learned this, this um, ability to, to kind of negotiate too. And, and again, that's what my oldest son has ended up doing as a career is heading into um, business and, and fi he's a, fi a finance manager at a car dealership. And so he's been able to head into that and do quite well for himself. Well, this is really interesting too, because you talk about boats and so like the garage selling could be $5 <laughs> items, but they could be 10,000 or $50,000 items. I mean, you can really... And as you increase the price point, you have a much better propensity. Like, I mean, as a real estate agent, you're just flipping houses, right? Or selling houses for, and, and that's why we're paid so well. So really the skill set's the same. It's just really a matter of leveling up, if you want to, leveling up the, the things that you're selling if you want to make more money. Well, I'm not a mathematician, but I will tell you, this happened just this week is on Friday. I purchased a set of canisters, cool vintage canisters. I paid $3 for this set of canisters. I sold it the next day for $150, $175. So do the math there. I mean, if you yeah. want to go and look at the percentage of increase, um, it was massive. And so it didn't take me much to make $172 on this purchase. And so it, exactly what you're saying with the sailboats too, you can start leveling it up. My biggest advice when you're starting to resell things though, is no, don't sell what you know. Don't go in there thinking, I'm, I'm, I think Apple products are going to be great. I'm going to pick up all these iPhones when I know nothing about an iPhone. Um, yeah, just sell what you know. And I know that that has been something that my, my oldest son has said when he was selling, reselling and flipping. He said the only time he really got posed in an investment that he made was when he deviated from that advice. And so buy what you know, resell what you know, and you'll yeah. be successful. My brother does the same thing. He works on Nintendo. You know, he fixes them. And so he makes thousands of dollars a month fixing these devices and, and selling them back out. I want to get in your story about paying off your house. Cause I think that's a value that a lot, like not a lot of people are like really focused on paying off their house. So I want to talk to you about how does it feel to have a home that's paid off and, and give us a little bit about the process. Um, I didn't realize how abnormal that was. Um, but I honestly in person don't know too many people who have a paid off home, especially in our area, just being in the Seattle area. Um, and so for us, again, I also didn't realize until I wrote this blog post article about how to pay off your home, um, that people didn't realize that they could even do that. A lot of people just feel like I'm, I'm paying rent and my mortgage is like my rent. And so I would always just have rent essentially. And so a lot of people didn't even realize they could pay extra to pay off their home loan. But I think when you purchase a home, you should always go in it with the mentality that you're going to pay it off. Right. I mean, you, you sign up and say, I'm going to pay 
for 30 years or a 15 year mortgage and you say, I'm going to pay it off in this time. But so many people use it as a cash, cash cow and they start taking out money constantly. And for us, we saw the end game of saying, well, let's just pay it off. And I think a lot of it came down to um, a mindset shift in us versus a lifestyle change. And so what started out was we bought our first house when I was 22. My husband was 23. We purchased our first home. And a lot of that came from our parents having paid for our college tuition. So when we graduated from college, we had absolutely no debt whatsoever. We were able to start a foundation on my husband's career and use that financial foundation to continue to leverage that and to build up. And so when we sold our first home after living in it for quite some time, um, we lived there for nine years. We raised three kids in that. We, you know, we had, had three kids and we just were bursting at the seams. And so we purchased the home, our second home, um, at the right time. We waited out the market and waited until it was a buyer's market. And so we purchased our home um, and, and we initially came out with a 30-year mortgage. And we did a 30-year mortgage for five years. We went in and refinanced. We realized we got a much better deal. We got a 15-year mortgage and we're able to pay that off in another five years. So we paid off our home in 10 years. Um, and, and we did that with, the, in, with that mindset shift change because we looked at an amortization spreadsheet. We kind of started, my husband is very much into spreadsheets. He loves plugging numbers. He's an engineer, he just loves numbers. I could sit there and everything glosses over and I do not care, but I appreciate squeezing the dollar hard enough that I can save the money and my husband goes forth and he makes a plan for it. And so that's how our partnership has worked. And so I started seeing how he was viewing our home mortgage in this amortization spreadsheet seeing that if we put more money, even $50, even $100, something like that, closer, how much it was taking down off the life of our mortgage. And it was really interesting for me to see that. And I will do a lot to save a dollar, but to save $100,000 over the life of a mortgage, heck yeah, sign me up. I'll do whatever it takes. And so it was really motivating for us to do that. And so some of the ways we were able to do that is a, we had sold our home at a profit. The first home that we had, we sold it at a profit. We're able to put a ton of money down. We bought when it was a buyer's market. Again, another thing that you need to kind of wait on um, and not just be excited about to go just, I need to buy a house because that is a, a great dream to have. It is a great priority to have, but you don't always need to go purchase the house. It's not always the, the most sound financial decision at the time. Um, and, and, and then we were just able to really just afford a home too that was in our budget. So we went into it knowing that we would pay extra on it. So it, it's often comical the amount of money a bank will lend to a family um, because they know that you'll skip vacations. They know that you'll skip um, new cars. They know that you'll skip all of the fun lifestyle things in order to pay your mortgage. And we didn't want that. We wanted to have a home that we were comfortable in, but could still do all of those things and still continue to meet our financial goals. And for us, it was really important for us to continue to pay or to help and pay for our kids' college because that was a foundation, again, that was set for us initially. And so um, with us being young and married and being able to start our future on a really solid foundation without any college debt, we knew we wanted to do the same thing for our family and our kids. And so, so we had that goal in mind and that focus, and we were pretty driven. And again, like I said, I feel like it's a mindset shift versus a lifestyle change. And I say that because you have to be in that focus and you have to be driven in a way that says, I'm doing this so I can do whatever your financial goal is in the future. 
versus a lifestyle change where you say, well, I'm not going to go out with my friends this weekend because I want to save 20 bucks or 30 bucks at the bars or out to eat or something like that, because that starts to feel like deprivation and deprivation never gets anyone anywhere. And so if you've got that mindset change of going, well, you know what, I can still go out with my friends, but maybe we can do something different and still save that money to be able to put towards my financial goals. I feel like that makes such a difference in the long run for what your priorities are versus trying to change a lifestyle and go, well, I'm going to skip Starbucks because that $6 Starbucks isn't, you know, is, is really breaking the bank. Your $6 Starbucks is not breaking the bank. What it is, is that lifestyle like thought that if, you know, that I, I can't do this, I can't have this. And the thing is, is you can have those things, but maybe you won't get to your financial goals if you, if you are doing some of those things. So you really do have to have that mindset shift initially to be able to get those, that, that, lifestyle change, I think that happens. Everyone who listens to our show knows Tim and I are passionate about obtaining financial freedom through real estate investing. We also know that everyone's situations and goals are different. And while there are programs out there that show you a path to financial freedom, many of these programs are just too cookie cutter and don't take your personality, situation, and desired outcome into account. Think about the number of times that you've watched a guru online and tried to do the exact same thing as they did, but had nowhere near the same results. You are not alone. When I got started, I was continually paying for courses and getting only partial results until I discovered the path that made sense for me. The results prove this out. Most online course creators have let us in on their dirty secrets that 90 to 95% of their students never complete their course and achieve their desired outcome. This is not something that we're okay with. The benefit of working with Tim and I is that we are interviewing between five and 20 people every single week. We have accumulated hundreds of seven-figure strategies and gotten inside scoop from these successful entrepreneurs. We're able to work with you to pick the strategy that will best fit and then help you create the custom plan to take you quickly into financial freedom. As a former math teacher, I always taught my students that the fastest way between two points is a straight line. If you want to get rid of the many curves in the road that can make the journey longer and more costly, then go to coaching.freedomchaserspodcast.com and book a call with us, and let's get you on a straight line path to freedom. What is the feeling you guys got when you paid off the house? So it's been two years, a little over two years. And honestly, it feels like nothing has changed. <laughs> I think that's the funniest question because people ask all the time, what does it feel like? It, the grass is not greener, like nothing feels different. I mean, it literally feels the exact same. Um, my kids are still super expensive. And so all of that extra money goes to them. Um, but not only that, it also goes to our, you know, we, we're investing a ton. And so that's really important. We're able to do really fun things. And for me, it's all about being able to control your money versus money controlling you. Yeah. And so for us, we're able to control where our money goes. Um, we're taking a month-long trip to Africa later this year. Um, it's, it's things like that. It's just being able to afford the lifestyle that we want without really thinking twice about it. We aren't burdened by having a home payment. It's, I mean, I just, I, I feel like nothing's changed in that regard. It doesn't feel any different. I mean, I feel like sometimes people ask that too about, what does it feel like to, you know, have a net worth of over a million dollars or multiple millions or, or whatever it is? It really doesn't feel that different. There wasn't like a momentous event where it was like, I don't even think we went out to dinner when we put that last mortgage payment out there. I think it was just, okay, great. We're having chicken tonight. That's just what we always do. It's nothing really changed in that regard. Um, it's so funny but it is nice. Things, yeah. It's so funny how these things mentally, because I agree with you. So like when we hit the $1 million net worth, it was like zero change. In fact, like I would say that more that our net worth has grown, the more like 
there's almost like a more of a responsibility to the wealth. Like I almost feel more mm. burdened now by the wealth that I have than when I had less. But I did because we paid off our house in 2013 or 14, I think. Um, and it was like, I felt different. It was weird. I don't know why. Like I was walking around the backyard. And I don't know if my chest felt a little bigger or I don't know what it was, but it just felt free. Uh, we have since upgraded and now we have a mortgage again. But um, so obviously it wasn't so good of a feeling that I had to, you know, stick with it, but had to continue uh, it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, awesome. I want to dive into content. I mean, you've been in content creation for 13 years. That's a pretty substantial amount of time. Uh, obviously, you know, similar to sales and other businesses, content creators, it, it could be a hard road for a lot of people. So if you could talk to us about like some of the skills you built, the lessons that you've learned that have allowed you to be in content for 13 years. I think the big thing is consistency. Honestly, um, consistency is so important. There are so many new and shiny things that are constantly coming out, but as long as you're consistent and have a consistent, authentic representation, you'll continue to succeed. Now, do I have the biggest platform? Absolutely not. Am I a Kim Kardashian on the internet? Nope, not my desire, never have been. But to be able to be consistent in the realm and continue to show up and continue to um, just embrace your skills and embrace what you want to put out there has been really, um, I think that's been the biggest, the biggest part about being in content creation. And it's important in anything you do. I mean, if, if you're talking to your, your people who are selling real estate, just being consistent and showing up on a regular basis, um, typically gets rewarded for, you know, for the algorithms, um, I would say the other thing is not to put all your eggs in one basket. I think it's really easy to start throwing everything you have into um, an Instagram or a Facebook, or now the newest shiny thing is threads. And all of three of those are owned by Meta. Um, and so being really cautious about how you go into content, um, knowing that they are all run by the same platform and community. And so there, I've seen it before where there are people who do not diversify um, in their content creation plan, which is a plan um, that, that they end up getting burned, throwing everything into one platform. Um, and so being consistent across the board is really, really helpful um, versus just throwing everything into one. And it is a lot harder. <laughs> it's not as much fun. Uh, it does take a lot of time. Um, and so setting boundaries is another big one um, because it is really easy to be sucked into posting or being consistent on social media. Um, and, and that is a really big thing. And so for me, um, being a mom of teenagers, when all of the social media platforms kind of came out and got big, um, wasn't something that I wanted to model to them. And so I spent far less time on any of those platforms to grow them um, back in the day because I wanted to be a good example and good role model, role model to my children because they are always watching. And so for me, that was important to, to not do that. So I may not have the same numbers that I would have otherwise. Um, and I think the last thing is just to look at your, whatever it is that you have is a business. Um, I'm not just playing on the internet when I'm on social media, that's not what I'm doing. And so I think looking at analytics is really important. Um, seeing what's doing well for you, seeing what is resonating with an audience um, is really important, but you have to look at it like a business. And so um, that can be a really tough shift and change if you're starting to maybe build a platform or build an audience um, if you've never done that before. And I, and I think one of those big things for me was I was a stay-at-home mom. This was one of those things that I was 
I was doing, this was my identity. This is how I did it. I was a stay at home mom to three young children. Um, and for me, that part was important. The blog was an offset of that. It sort of spun out and took on a life of its own. There was a lot of time that I put in during nap times. There was a lot of time that I put in um, after hours um, to put in there where I wasn't making any money. Um, but putting in that time and that effort, that consistency over time grows a, a platform that you are really proud of and um, you know that you learn a lot from. Um, and there are mistakes that you'll make. It is just, it is just part of life. There are things that will be complete duds and things that you'll work on for four seconds and you go, oh my gosh, that just went viral. What the heck? And so it, it's always interesting to, again, just keep showing up. And I think that's the biggest takeaway that you can take from content creation. Yeah. And you talk about ownership. I think that's something that people are becoming more aware of is obviously with you know, some censorship going on in these platforms and various things going on. Like you don't really have ownership of your own content on these platforms. For you, you talk about the idea of being consistent across a lot of platforms, but is it like with the strategy of driving everything back to the platforms that you own or is there kind of yes. sub strategies behind that? No, that's a hundred percent. it. Talk my goal is to always bring everything back to my blog. That is always my goal because my blog is my revenue. So the blog is what it started out as. I started this website, rachelteodoro.com, 150 years ago. And for me, it started out, honestly, it started out 18 years ago when I started a, a, like a family blog. And it was a way before Facebook to stay connected to friends and family um, that weren't living close to us. And so what happened over time is that it kind of started to shift where I would share things that I was interested in or passionate about. I would share upcycles that I was doing um, and things like that. And then there were people that were coming to my website that I didn't invite, that I didn't know where they were coming from. And then it started to get weird. And so I was like, okay, we're going to spin this off because I don't want people to like know all of these details about my family. So I'm going to change this a little bit and create that anonymity, which is what I did 13 years ago. And so by creating that website and that platform, then I was able to continue to build it. And this was again, um, pre social media for the most part. And so I was able to, to, to build a platform and build content on a blog. Um, and then social media started to come out. And so everything that I do is then tied back to, I want to direct people back to my blog because my blog is where I do advertising and where I'm getting most of my revenue from. Um, I mean, Facebook doesn't generally, or Instagram or, uh, TikTok don't generally pay you just to post. Um, you know, there are certain times that they do and people are always thinking I can make a ton of money from these platforms and that's not necessarily true, but there are a lot of content creators who have a, have an agenda, have a platform and you want to give value to those things. And so if we're talking about a, a real estate, um, you know, professional, we want to, we want to have that real estate professional show value on their social media pages show why they are someone that you want to hire or listen to. Um, and that's important to, to set up on your um, platforms, but then drive that back to whatever source is making you money. Maybe Instagram is making you money. I don't know, but, but drive, sort, drive that back to what is making you money and, and how you can grow your business. And if it comes from lead generation from clients or if it comes from other types of things, um, it's just always having that mentality of knowing what that looks like. Yeah. And what is your vision for your life and business the next 12 to 18 months? Oh, wow. <laughs> well, you've got me at a weird time, Matt, because we are empty nesters for the very first time in 25 years. And so um, for us, this is a transition period of time. I started the blog and this kind of side hustle initially 
um, just to provide flexibility for my family. Like I said, I was a stay-at-home mom. To being able to be at home with my kids was important, and being able to have that flexibility was really important to me. But now that all of my kids have graduated high school and are now moved on into the second act of their lives, it's less important for me to be as flexible because nobody needs me but my dogs. So I'm a stay-at-home dog mom right now, and that's what that looks like. Um, it also looks like I'm continuing to be consistent and take that advice that I just shared earlier, where I am continuing to post on my on my website. I'm continuing to show up on social media. Um, I pivoted to adding more travel content um, back in January of 2020, which was really not the best time to pivot to travel. <laughs> um, and so I, I've got some of that content out there because travel was important to me. That was a gift that I was able to give our children as we, as we did some of those things. Um, but on my website, I also go over some of these things that we've talked about here, living well and less, how to, how to find the best deals at a, at a thrift shop, how to go to grab sales, how to, um, you know, how to eat out of your pantry because you sit there and you look at it and you go, there's no food. And then you actually go, oh yeah, but there is. And so it's, it's doing those kinds of things that have always come naturally to me that then I'm sharing with other people. And so, so maybe in the next 12 to 18 months, I'll continue to do that, but maybe I don't know, maybe I won't, maybe I'll do something else. I have hit this point where I'm not quite sure what's next. So I am diving in a slightly bit, a, a little bit more into the reselling market. Um, that was a goal of mine this year is to, I've always done it as a hobby. Um, and so I'm setting up some shops again on just Etsy and eBay. I'm going to just give that a shot and we'll see what happens. So I'm just trying again to just figure out what's next. And there's so much financial freedom and just knowing that I can do whatever I want to do right now, really. Like there's not a whole lot of um, other things that are holding me back. I could do whatever I want to do. I think it's the phrase everybody wish they could utter. Uh, Rachel, thank you so much for coming on and sharing about your life and business. There's so much we could take away from today, right? I mean, like the culture is pushing us to spend lots of money. And, and a lot of times it's to our own detriment. It's to the opposite of freedom. So guys, whatever you took from this episode, whether it's being frugal, whether it's it's paying off your house on a strategic plan, or even just how to create content in a way that generates additional revenue for your business. There's so many things we talked about today that can be applied to your life. Write down something you learned, share it with somebody you know so they can hold you accountable. Because freedom is acquired one action at a time. And if you take steps day by day before you know it, you too will be living a life of freedom. Thank you guys for tuning in. We'll catch you on the next episode. Please like, comment, share, and subscribe. Engagement is like gold to us. We can't do what we're doing without it. Reviews and subscriptions, particularly on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube, are worth more than money. So please do what you can to support the show. 